For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome back. I'm Christina Dent, your host. Today we've got Timothy King with us again. He's the author of the new book, Addiction Nation, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us. If you missed part one last time, go download it. It was a fantastic conversation on how Tim approaches drugs and the drug war um, through the lens of Scripture. Tim, welcome back. Thank you again for having me. One thing that I loved most about your book is that uh, it has 24 short chapters. I love a good short chapter. And you managed to include what felt like 24 different books worth of content, one in each chapter simplified, which is amazing. Uh, So well done on that. It was a lot more writing that it over half of what I wrote is now on the cutting room floor. Right. <laughs> it takes a while to get a, it takes a lot longer to write a short chapter than a long chapter. Yes, and I love that you put the work to do in to do that. So each chapter is really like this very different piece of this very complex 24 piece puzzle that you put together and I love that. Didn't feel like I was reading the same thing kind of regurgitated in different ways because you had to find enough content to create a book so that a publisher would publish it. It really felt like, wow, there was so much more he could have included. And he honed it down to include just the best, most applicable um, parts of this. So I, I loved it. I love the, it kind of goes through a flow. The book kind of goes uh, in a path sort of um, through the, the harder part and up into the, the hope of what is possible and how we find our way out of um, the crisis of addiction that we are in. So I really um, love the book and encourage people to, to get it and read it and think deeper about um, why we are in what we're in and how we can uh, have better paths to get out of that. So today we're going to look at addiction, what drives it, and just as importantly, the path out of it, um, or the many paths out of it. Even if you just look at addiction in America, we're not just addicted to drugs. We're addicted to gambling, pornography, food, Facebook, so many things. Um, So something much deeper than drugs is at work in our culture in increasingly destructive ways. And really, if we want to reduce harmful addictions and make the road to sobriety easier, we have to ask those deeper questions of what's causing addiction in the first place and why sobriety is often so difficult to maintain and how we can make that more um, accessible to people. So one of the things I loved about this book was how life-giving Tim's approach to addiction and recovery is. He resists the urge to simplify it or to over-spiritualize it or to over-medicalize it. Uh, And he does, I think, what's very challenging to do, which is to hold a lot of things in tension together. So as a Christian, I found that especially helpful because we all lose when we fail to acknowledge all of the facets that are a part of addiction for most people, and thus all of the facets that are a part of recovery uh, for most people. So Tim, tell us a story of how you came to understand the paths into addiction and the paths of hope out of it. So this was... You know, a, a tough book to write as well, because that was a lot of, of, of soul searching and understanding what happened in, in my life that brought me from a simple kind of dependency where my body was just used to and uh, the drugs that I was on to an addiction. And one of the first things that, that, I began, that began to help me understand my own story is that previously I had in my head, and I don't think I would have even said this out loud, but I had in my head what was called the moral model of addiction. 
And that is the idea that addiction is always just another symptom of the life of a morally depraved person, right? You are a bad person. And so one of the things that bad people do is they get addicted. And I had that in my head, even though I probably wouldn't have even said it. And this had been reinforced by my doctors, right? I, and before I had a great doctor, and I'll tell you that part of the story, I had doctors who multiple times um, had these harsh engagements where they accused me of simply drug seeking, where I was in the hospital and I was in pain, I was asking for pain medicine, and they would just say, no, we think you're making this up and we're not going to give you any more pain medicine. And each time they actually missed uh, another complication that ended up threatening my life. And so I was deeply defensive of my own use of pain medicine at that point. And I also had this idea that in my head is that only, only bad people get addicted. And so I was in that tension of there was a time where this was important and I was right and I needed more. And then there also was a time that I needed to reflect on the fact that I wasn't getting better because I was still taking so much, so much pain medicine, that the pain medicine that before had been beneficial was now, was now hurting me. And that was where I began. One person who helped me kind of put this into shape um, was a Christian philosopher who said a lot of people think that addiction starts in this kind of relentless pursuit of pleasure, and that it's just this selfish kind of downward spiral when in fact, he, he argued that addiction always starts in the pursuit of some sort of moral good. That anyone who gets addicted, it always has its, its origins in pursuing something that is, actually has some good about it. And so that could be treating physical pain. That could be treating emotional trauma. That could be searching for a sense of connection or transcendence. Those are all good things that we are searching for, but addiction occurs not because, you know, the, the object of our addiction always lies. It starts because it's only telling part of the truth. And that's where the objects of our addiction, whether it's to drugs or it's to internet, it's always providing some semblance of a good that we're, all of us are looking for, all of us are pursuing. But at the same time, there's the dark side where it can begin to cause more harm than good. But it's often covered up in that. One of the things that someone who's a therapist here told me is uh, after he had read uh, the book Chasing the Scream, he had taken one of the stories out of it um, of women in a prison in Arizona. And um, part of the quotes from that, from those women, were the first time they had tried, you know, X drug, um, they felt like, it was this feeling of being loved for some of them, really the feeling of being loved for the first time, being wrapped in a warm hug. And he gave that to a group of um, patients that he was doing group therapy with. And he had them read it and said, what do you most uh, identify with about the stories of these women in prison? And instead of identifying with all the parts of the, the trauma of prison, the thing that they most said is, I understand that feeling because that's how I felt. I felt this uh, this well-being, this goodness, this sense of, you know, connection and love. Um, and I think for people growing up with my kind of perspective of, you know, never used, uh, you know, illegal drugs or misused prescription drugs, and I've never had that kind of feeling before. And so, it, you know, the, the thought of, 
oh, people want to use drugs because they want to get high. And it never even crossed my mind, what does that even mean for people? What does that feel like to people? You know, what is it that it's doing for them uh, that they would want that? Um, And when I read those portions of your book talking about kind of the way that addictions are rooted in um, something that initially was a helpful uh, pursuit, um, maybe a pursuit towards something that we would have all said, that's a good thing to want. It's a good thing to to seek. And yet it ends up um, becoming disordered and uh, and turning on you and becoming something really harmful. But I loved that approach to really kind of clarifying this isn't, this wasn't somebody out to destroy their life and everyone else's in the beginning. This is something that initially started out as something um, that for them was something helpful. And that's where one of the amazing, like the, especially with opioid addiction is opioids mimic our endorphins. And so endorphins, those are what we call our molecules of emotion. It is what makes us feel a sense of love. But the word endorphin is actually endogenous and morphine put together. So it's the body's own version of that opioid. And so it really isn't surprising in a time when people feel more disconnected than ever, and they feel more cut off from community, they feel more cut off from others, they feel more cut off from meaning and purpose in life, that the substance a lot of people are turning to is one that mimics that sense of love and connection. And then you also see the rise with other drugs like um, methamphetamines, and that is a drug that makes people feel powerful and makes them feel in control. And so after their life has felt out of control, to have that moment, to have that sense that I that you have agency, that you have autonomy, that makes a lot of sense that people are turning to that drug too. So what helped you on your journey out of addiction? One of the most significant moments for me was this conversation with my doctor. So I'd been out of the hospital for a few months. I wasn't able to eat at this point, so I was just hooked up to IV nutrition. And every time that I was trying to eat, I couldn't. And we weren't sure why, because I was supposed to be getting better. And I was taking more and more pain medicine. And I went in to see my doctor. And he sat me down. And he explained that I was experiencing what they called um, gastric paresis, where I was on such heavy doses of these opioids that it actually numbed my entire digestive system so that I I couldn't eat. And he sat down and he said, Tim, you need to know that you're addicted to your pain medicine. And I held in my breath. I was ready to fight him. And I was ready to let him know how wrong he was and how many doctors had accused me of that before. And then he said, but you didn't do anything wrong. And I let out that breath and I was able to hear what he said next because he had actually been trained in motivational interviewing. And he knew that the starting point to help me reflect on this, to help me enter into recovery, was not to beat me up, not to blame me, not to let me know that I was a bad person, but to let me know that he understood. The second thing he said is, I know you're still in pain. And that's where Gabor Mate, um, in the realm of Hungry Ghosts, I think that's another one of your favorite books, Mate says every addiction is always rooted in some kind of pain, whether it's Mm. out in the front or it's hidden, whether it is physical or psychological. 
he knew that I was using that medicine to try to ward off that pain and to try to pursue these other things, like because I was spending a lot of time alone. I was traumatized by the fact that I had almost lost my life and I was still trying to process that. And so when he was able to put me at ease and help me understand that he wasn't going to just suddenly take away from me the one thing that I had come to rely on for all those feelings, that I had come to rely on for that sense of connection, for that sense of well-being, um, that allowed me to hear what he was saying and to accurately and start to reflect on my relationship with that pain medicine. And that was where it was odd. He was a pancreatic specialist. And his final thing that he said to me is, Tim, what does a full life look like for you? And he got me thinking, not about trying to control my behavior, but cultivate that sense of meaning and purpose that would give me a yes to say. And that's where I think that old, that old idea of just saying no to drugs actually isn't helpful. What we, we really want to say is, what's the big yes that you're saying? And I'm not, I don't want to equate addiction with a demon possession or anything like that, but the story that Jesus tells as he talks at this parable of someone who cleaned out their home from a demon, but then left the home empty. And then seven came back even worse than before. And that's where that's so important to go back to the concept of the drug wars. When we just take away from people, you know, people can go into prison and they might not use for years, depending on the prison, because there's also a lot right. of drugs that get into prison. <laughs> But someone can not use for years and come back out. And the person in our country today that is most likely to overdose is someone who just ex exits prison. Right. And I think that's because we've taken away so many other options for meaning and purpose from that per person through our punishment system. They don't have that sense. They don't have that sense of what they can now accomplish because we've cut off those avenues. And that is, for me, what was so important was that sense of connection to others. I had amazing neighbors. I had friends. A friend was starting a church and would pick me up every Sunday to go meet in his basement together. And even though he didn't know what I was going through, even though my neighbors didn't know what I was going through as far as wrestling with that addiction, that connection was so important. And I also, at that point, had great therapists. I had alternative pain treatment. And it was a focus on how do they help me accomplish those goals for health and well-being as opposed to how do we control your behavior to get you to stop? And I know that might make people sound nervous because that's what we want. When we see someone heading down a path that we're worried about, we just want to get them to stop. We want them to stop that behavior. But that's never the best way to help someone change. We know from you know the habits in our daily lives to dealing with addiction that the strongest change, the most sustainable change, is one where that person has that motivation coming from inside them, not it being imposed from the outside. Talk about one of the studies that you reference in the book. You talked a little bit about motivational interviewing, and this was so striking to me, um, just the impact of uh, how much other people believe that you will succeed has on your own ability to succeed. Talk about that. Yeah, the study that just blew my mind was these two researchers, Leek and King, and they went to three different alcohol recovery centers, and they studied everyone who is being treated there, and their background, their patient history, and anything that they could think of they wanted to understand as much as they could. And then they took a look at all those factors, and they put together a list of the people they believed were most likely to enter into recovery. 
And so they hand over the list to the staff and the counselors, and they say, we're going to want to track this, but here's our list of people we think are going to uh, enter into sobriety. So they leave and come back a year later, and they check in on their predictions. And sure enough, they were spot on. Everybody on their list was more likely to get sober and stay sober, more likely to get a job and keep a job. And if they had a relapse, it was shorter and less severe. So everyone wanted to know what was it that these researchers had figured out that was such a powerful predictor of who would enter into recovery. The big reveal was nothing. They had randomly assigned every person to that list. The only thing that had changed was the expectation of the staff and the counselors. And that is where hope, and this is the person who I read the study from was William Miller. He just said, hope is such a powerful healer. And that's not just about the person struggling with addiction. This is where why the, the subtitle of my book, What the Opioid Crisis Reveals About Us, I think is so important, is we think about addiction normally as the person who is struggling with that addiction. But I think we need to start asking, if hope that other people have is such a powerful healer, then is hope missing within our society that more people aren't entering into recovery? What does that say about all of us? that we don't have that kind of hope, that we don't have that kind of faith, that we don't have that kind of belief that every person can enter into recovery. And so why, what's holding us back from doing more to support people, to do more to believe in them, to be more to make sure that they get the kind of treatment and the medical care that they need? And I think that's where there were so many people in my life who were the grace that I needed. I wrote this book and I did wanted to put up front, this is not about what I did right. This is not about the strength of my, my mm. will. This is not a regimen for how you can do it, just like Tim. Mm. This is about what others did for me. This is about the way people stood in for me. This is about the way people were grace for me. And that's another thing that I believe is that grace is not something that is only available through through Jesus, right? I believe that's the, the source and that's the origin, but I also believe that all of us are called to be that grace in the world, that that's a calling for each of us is to be grace in other people's lives. One thing about that study that um, was so striking to me is that the people the people who were participating in the study were not told which group they were in. So it wasn't that they personally had more hope in their own recovery or were given more reason to believe that they uh, were going to recover more. It's just the people around them who were told who they should expect to have better outcomes and just the power that how we as a culture respond to um, people struggling with addiction uh, and you've talked about how, you know, one of the factors you feel like in your um, addiction is that it was able to be addressed early on where so much of our addiction is so hidden uh, and has spiraled downward for so long because uh, most people aren't having the kind of interactions that you were able to have. And most people aren't able to have, you know, step down uh, opioids, you know, by a doctor and that sort of thing. We've we've kind of gone away from that. Um, and that is just such a really... I, it just gives me so much hope to think about this is the kind of world that we can, whether or not we're the one dealing with the addiction, we can help to create the climate where addiction has the least chance of spiraling and the most chance of being uh, addressed early and with grace and with hope and allowing people and helping them 
into a path of um, sobriety. Now, a lot of people do say, um, you know, if you're coming from a Christian worldview, they might say, well, we just, people just need more of Jesus. They just need more. They need to read the Bible more. They need to pray more. They just need more of Jesus to beat this addiction. And I loved how in your book, you really tried to hold intention um, spiritual components of addiction and medical components of addiction. Uh, how do you respond to that when people say, you know, we don't need medication-assisted treatment, we just need people going to a, you know, a Christian treatment center that's teaching them the Word of God? Yeah, that's a great question, and that was one that I, I wrestled with, because, you know, my faith was a part of my recovery journey, and so I, I very much see that in my own life. But at the same time, I think we fall into another really ancient debate within the church, and that is the idea that we need to separate out entirely the medical and the spiritual, that it's somehow one or the other, or that somehow just a spiritual orientation is is all you need, and that the physical doesn't really matter. So things like medically-assisted treatment, yeah, we need to fundamentally understand that addiction needs to be addressed from a public health perspective and from a medical perspective, and also still be comfortable with the fact that there will be people who uh, faith is an important part of their life and their journey. And that's where with medically assisted treatment, one of the things that I often say is people accuse it of just oh, like, well, that's a crutch. I was like, well, and if you broke your foot, that's exactly what you need. And when we understand that addiction can physically change the brain. It changes how it functions, and it targets those centers, and it hurts those centers that are most likely to help us recover. That's where it makes so much more sense that, of course, that physical part is an important thing. That medical help is an important thing. It's at the core of what we need, and study after study shows that medically-assisted treatment, um, when it's combined with therapy, can reduce... uh, overdoses in those populations by over 50%. So that's absolutely crucial to understand. And the other thing that I think is uh, uh, something that people get mixed up with is a lot of Christians, I think, always think of conversion as that moment when Saul became Paul, right? And he's on the road to Tarsus, and there's a big light, and he goes blind. And it is this huge change, this wholesale shift that happens completely and all at once. And That is one model of how some people change, right? There are those who experience addiction, and they just have this sudden moment where the the light shifts and things are different from that day forward. But that's the exception, Mm -hmm. not the rule. We often hear those stories because they're very dramatic, and that is an easy thing for us to lock onto, but that's not actually how most people change. That wasn't how I changed. I had a moment of realization where I started to shift, and I started to head on that road, but it took months and months to step down. It took months and months for me through cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing to begin to shift and to change my relationship with that substance. So I think that's another dangerous thing is that people think that there will just be this moment where everything changes, where in fact, what we often see are these very slow, gradual changes over time. And that's why it's so important that one of our biggest jobs is... (laughs) Sounds sounds simple, but if you're not alive, you can't enter into recovery. Amen. And we need to do everything we can to keep people alive so that they have every opportunity 
to enter into recovery, every opportunity to step into sobriety, every opportunity to get the treatment they need, because if they're not alive, we can't do that. And that's another, to bring in um, legalization and decriminalization again, that's why it sounds crazy. It sounds counterintuitive. I wasn't there when I first started researching this idea of like safe injection sites or, or even these ideas that they have in Switzerland of heroin-assisted treatment. But what it does is it keeps people alive. It keeps them in relationship with those who have the resources to help them. And what happens over time is people do change. And any given year with what treatment program you do see, there's really tough rates. Um, some of these programs aren't very effective. There certainly are ones that are better than others. Um, but you see these relapse rates and you can feel very frustrated. But Given time, over the course of 10 years, if people are kept alive, if they're kept healthy, if they're not going into prison, then people do step into sobriety. They do step into recovery. And that happens when those resources are available to them. And that's, our, that's one of the things that I think we need to do is make sure that people are alive and safe as long as possible to have those sorts of experiences. Thank you for joining us again, Tim. Thank you so much for having me and all the work you do. You can buy Addiction Nation anywhere that books are sold, and I hope you do. It's a really great, thoughtful um, endeavor to help us to a better place. All of us are struggling, and this book gives us a grace-filled path to help us understand what's happening in our culture, to draw us together into community and collectively towards growth. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.